Hello everyone, Sir Midnight here. I just wanted to say that I just created a Patreon page and you can go there today and for only $5 a month you can get special access to my episodes early and bonus episodes whenever I create them. By becoming an early access patron, you will be able to listen to my episodes a day or two days in advance. The files will not include music, sound effects, or anything special. Just you and my voice to soothe your soul. A complete raw file of the entire episode. So if you would like to support me and get access to those early episodes, go to www.patreon.com slash Sir Midnight's World of Horror. And now, let's get on to the episode. A note from the transcriber. The events described here were removed from the records of the building known as Evenwood Hospital. This document is meant to perhaps shine some light on the supposedly paranormal goings on found within the establishment that led to its sudden closing. If you find this document in your possession and decide to read it, be warned. Those behind the tragedy have not yet been brought to justice, nor has a scientific explanation been found for the more supernatural elements thereof. Nobody has stepped forwards, claiming to be Sketch, the person or creature stated to be responsible. As such, this contains the facts and only the facts. Evenwood Hospital was built in the town of Evenwood, Massachusetts during the colonial era by Joseph Price, a wealthy businessman at the time. It was operated by Price's family for many generations, until bought out by Emmerich Valance, a wealthy German doctor looking to find a solo business opportunity. Emmerich ran the hospital for five years without incident. The people of the town considered him an upstanding citizen, the kind of person that absolutely nothing could even go wrong for. Surely people like Emmerich would always find a way to survive. It was on the anniversary of his six-year living in the town of Evenwood that all that changed. Emmerich was holding an annual gala at his house to celebrate six successful years of his business. He, his wife Anna, and his daughter Kaja lived in a large home near the hospital. The years had been good to them. It was one of Evenwood's most expensive houses. The guests for the gala began to arrive at around 7 o'clock, and the family was there to greet them. Anna was considered a great beauty, with light golden hair and blue eyes. Kaja took more about her father, a waif-like brunette with shrewd green eyes and glasses. Both were considered the perfect family for the doctor. The gala was a large and public affair, and the house was filled with guests. 
Dr. Valon's colleagues had all been invited, and they stood in a corner talking with him until well past 7.45. Anna was sitting in the parlor, entertaining the female guests from 7.15 to 8.05, when it was time for the food to be served. Katja, meanwhile, had wandered off. Nobody saw her from 7.30 to 8. Although one guest fainted, claiming she'd heard the little girl screaming in pain from the upstairs conservatory, which had been boarded up for years. Emmerich opened up the conservatory, but Kaja was not inside. However, the window was open and wind was blowing in, although the room had not been touched for years. It was presumed that she had gone into the hospital to explore. When she returned, she carried with her a surprisingly accurate drawing of herself and looked distant. Her parents had been occupied during this time, and none of the guests had given this to her. When asked, she said that they were presents from the sketch man. Anna and Emmerich simply laughed at her. Lately, Kaja had been constantly talking about an imaginary friend who she called the sketch man. She said he lived in an old room in the hospital, drew things for her, and didn't like to be ignored. When her parents had insisted that there was no such person in the hospital, Kaja had thrown a tantrum, saying that he didn't like to be ignored. She said he had a dark red leather-bound sketchbook where he drew people who ignored him, and the people who ended up in that sketchbook always disappeared. Anna and Emmerich believed that she had read one of those awful penny dreadfuls and sent her to bed without dinner that night. Katja had settled down and admitted tearfully that she'd made up the story to scare her parents. Listening to her bring it up again, they believed it was a desperate bid for attention and let her be. The gala ran until 10 o'clock. Around that time, Katja disappeared yet again. Her parents waved goodbye to their guest, then set about searching for their daughter. She had an uncanny habit of wandering off and disappearing for hours on end. They checked the house from top to bottom, even the attic in the basement, which had been locked. She was nowhere to be found. Thinking she must have gone outside, Dr. Veillant lit a lantern and set out to look for Kaja on the property. By now... It was about 7.45. She wasn't anywhere near the house. So, Emmerich turned to the woods. He was searching through the trees, calling his daughter's name, when his servant found him at 11 o'clock. This servant was Vincent Clare, the butler. A vague account from Emmerich stated that something about Vincent had seemed odd that night. He appeared to be taller and his uniform was stained with a substance believed to be artist's ink. Also, Vincent's normally well-groomed black hair was wildly messed. Dr. Emmerich assumed this to mean the man had been drinking, and duly resolved to dock his pay for it. The butler relayed the message that Kaja had been found in her room, fast asleep, at 10.55. Emmerich was mildly confused as he was almost sure he and Anna had looked in that room first. Kaja had not been there when they checked. Just the drawing of her. Shaking his head, he muttered about the late hour and retired to bed at 
The next morning, Emric awoke and left promptly for work at 6 o'clock. Anna awoke shortly after this, at 6.15, and ordered the servants to prepare breakfast for her and Kaja. Breakfast was served at 6.20, which was around when Kaja woke up. As they ate, a letter was delivered to the house. It was addressed to Emric and contained a letter from Beatrice Claire, the wife of Vincent. Vincent had been found dead at 10.20 that evening, after a game of cards had taken a nasty turn. His opponents caught him cheating and decided to exact revenge by lynching. Anna was confused by this message, as Emmerich had returned to the house with Vincent at 11.03. She clearly remembered seeing him, although something had seemed different. Anna decided to visit her husband at the hospital, as the letter made her feel uneasy. She told the servants to look after Kaja, who was nowhere to be seen and had, presumably, disappeared again. When she left, it was 7 o'clock. Anna arrived at the hospital at 7.02. She went in immediately to look for Emric, uneasiness growing into fear. Inside, she tried in vain to compose herself, thinking that there had to be a logical explanation for the mystery unfolding in front of her. The servant she'd seen must have been somebody else, not Vincent, after all. She walked the halls, calling for Emric. The hospital was surprisingly empty, she thought. Although Anna could hear the sounds of patients moaning and doctors bustling about, she never saw a single one. Every last sheet was ink-stained and free of any inhabitants. As she was leaving one hallway, she heard her husband call back, although his voice sounded muffled and far away, like he was speaking through a gag. At that time, it was 7.09. Anna entered the ward he had been in, which was numbered 522. The door slammed behind her and a patient claimed to hear her screaming, then saw blood seeping out from under the door, intermingling with black ink. However, that was not possible as the hospital did not have a ward 522, and floor 5 was a storage area for old equipment. The door off the stairs leading to this floor, according to the janitor, had been locked up tight. At home, Kajov had vanished yet again. The servants could not locate her until finding her lying unconscious in the conservatory at 8 o'clock. Emric had relocked the conservatory after searching it the previous night. Yet the servants had found the door standing open when they went there to look for Kaja. At first they believed that she was asleep, exhausted from the previous night. They carried her up to her bed at 8.04. Kaja was left to lie until 9 o'clock when the servants checked back in on her. She still had not awoken and seemed to be running a fever. Kaja didn't respond to anything, not touch, sound, or smelling salts. The servants decided to send someone to the hospital to alert Dr. Valance of his daughter's illness. A strange, wild-haired footman, who none of the staff knew, but all swore was employed at the house, volunteered. He set off at 9.05 and arrived at the hospital around 9.07. 
He found Emmerich at 9.09 and relayed the news. Emmerich immediately returned to the house and arrived there at 9.11. The footman left Emmerich at this point and was never seen again by any other member of the staff. Dr. Vaillant then rushed to Kaja's room. To his surprise and fearful consternation, he found the door locked. From inside, he could hear Kaja moaning and crying out in pain. The cries were occasionally broken up by muttering the words, The sketchman has many faces. He's here with you right now, repeatedly. Jerking at the knob in paranoia, he called out for the servants to bring a key. A key was found at 9.20. By that time, Kaja's father was at his wit's end. He grabbed the key like a madman and forced open the door. Kaja was sitting up in bed, apparently fine. The only odd feature was that her brunette hair had turned a stark white and the room was filled with hasty drawings of a wild-haired figure. The servants were confused by her quick recovery and the sudden appearance of the artwork and questioned her on the subject. Kaja told them that the sketch man had made her better with magic. Emrick assumed that Kaja was remembering a dream she had while unconscious, although the mention of the sketchman again after what she had been muttering was unsettling. The chanting was still fresh in his mind, although he quietly assumed that it had probably been nerves and nothing more. Dr. Vellant sent her back to bed at 9.25. It was then that Emmerich was finally given the letter that told of Vincent Clare's death at 10.20 the previous night. He was confused, as he thought he'd seen Vincent Clare alive and well at 11 o'clock. The servants also notified him of his wife going to the hospital to tell him of this. Dr. Vellant was even more confused because he hadn't seen his wife, nor... Has she relayed her message? None of the other doctors had seen her either, although some nurses thought they heard one wild-haired patient mention having seen her going up the stairs to the fifth floor. By then, it was 9.35. Emric sent servants to search the hospital for Anna. They returned at 9.57. Anna had not been found, even on the fifth floor. Distraught, the doctor sent out a party to search the surrounding area, telling an unfamiliar wild-haired servant to look after Kaja. He dashed out the door. Emmerich searched until well past 12.30, then started to make his way back home. At around 1 o'clock, he stopped for food at a tavern. He did not arrive home until 3 o'clock. At home, Kaja was playing a game with the sketch man. The sketchman would hide, and she would try to find him, but if he found her first, he said he'd take her away from Evenwood to someplace magical. She still hadn't found him. Walking up towards the attic, Katja began to feel a little scared. The sketchman was being very, very quiet. Normally, he gave her a hint by rattling a doorknob or treading on a loose board. Now, it was dead silent but she had a sense that she was being watched. And that sense was growing by the minute. The creaking attic door was open already and inky footprints, the surefire mark of the sketch man's presence, were spattered across the stairs. She walked in, 
calling his name and telling him she didn't want to play anymore. Suddenly, she felt his arms around her. Katja looked behind her in fear and saw her friend standing over her, looking incredibly happy. His silvery eyes were swirling like smoke blown by the wind. Seeing her fear, the sketch man held her tighter. Katja began to struggle, but he held fast. The squeezing began to hurt, and it became difficult to breathe. She grabbed an old rusted knife her father had thrown up there and tried desperately to attack, but only managed to graze his arm. Downstairs, the grandfather clock struck four. The arm which Kaja had grazed was dripping a thick, black liquid. She screamed in horror when she realized it wasn't blood. It was black ink. The sketchman gave an animal howl in rage and pain, and grabbed the knife from her hand. Dipping a finger into the ink dripping from his arm, he wrote on the wall in spidery handwriting. It read, You told your parents that I didn't exist. He opened up a red leather-bound sketchbook and produced a drawing of Katja, lying still and cold on an unidentified flagstone floor. The little girl's mouth opened wide in fear as she realized that the Katja in the drawing was dead. He raised the weapon and prepared to strike her with it, but instead, he slid open her dress in the back and began to slash at her exposed skin. Katja screamed, pain hitting her in waves and clouding her vision. Blood was everywhere, seeping from her body across the floor. Eventually, the pain became too much. Blackness ate up all she could see, and Katja dropped into unconsciousness. When the servants found her some time later, they noticed that the scars were a picture of a wild-haired figure, but a little girl and a beautiful blonde woman were standing beside him, holding his hands. Below was written two chilling words, Together forever. Emric was inside of the house. He was crossing the lawn when he thought he heard Anna calling him from the woods, although her voice sounded muffled and odd. Blinded by love and relief, he moved towards the sound. It grew in volume, making him think he was getting closer, then died away. He found himself in a clearing he'd never seen before. The trees were thick over his head, making the clearing dark and shadowy. He saw a figure standing in the middle of it. A figure with wild hair, hands covered by a mixture of ink and blood. The figure turned to Emmerich, gave a charismatic smile, and pulled out a knife. A simple message was written with ink on the tree behind him. You should have listened to Kaja. Emmerich tried to run but fell, scrabbling wildly at the ground. The wild-haired person walked towards him, knife flashing silver as it struck downwards. Emmerich Valance and Anna Valance were never found. Their mysterious disappearances were only the first. Other workers there began vanishing until Evenwood Hospital was forced to close. If their bodies did turn up, then they were covered in the strange scar drawings. These drawings depicted more and more people as the body count mounted, but the wild-haired figure was always the most prominent. 
Some believe that Anna, Kaja, and Manfred's portraits in the gruesome drawing could still be seen. The town of Evenwood also was greatly depopulated. Eventually, the settlement was abandoned by the last few inhabitants, then burned in an attempt to kill the past. The hospital was the only building not set on fire. Nobody dared to go near it because of the horrible things that had transpired around it and the drawings on the walls. After the Valance met their end, the building became filled with the strange pen and ink artwork of the wild-haired figure. Eventually, drawings of the victims began to appear as well. Kaja's body was supposed to be burned, but the last inhabitants of the town left in a hurry after they thought they saw a wild-haired man in the forest holding a knife. Instead of proper funeral rites, her body was dumped in a hospital bed and left to rot. Sightings of the person known as the Sketch Man have been varying and sporadic all across the country. People who have seen him have disappeared after reportedly hearing a loved one calling to them. If bodies were found, then they again were covered in the mysterious scars. Although all the cases were different, there was one common factor. People would report seeing an odd, wild-haired man posing as somebody they knew, then go off alone, claiming they heard a loved one calling to them. None of these people who fell prey to the sketch man were never seen alive again. We can only assume he is still at large. In Anoka County, Minnesota, there's an old mental asylum that borders the high school. I'm talking right up next to it, sharing a fence and everything. My mom had said that when she went to school there in the 1970s, she'd seen patients walking around the grounds. Sometimes they'd come right up to the fence edge and watch while mom's tennis team practiced. I guess there are old graves in one of the courtyard corners too. Which makes sense, as it's been a running hospital since 1898. It no longer serves as a mental hospital, but is now a recovery centered for troubled teens and addicts. The underground tunnels are non-functioning and, for all intents and purposes, closed. But it is still patrolled. I can't imagine recovering from substance abuse or being in juvenile detention in a place with that history. With this kind of reputation, obviously it's been a victim to a number of stupid teens vandalizing, sneaking onto the property to ghost hunt or whatever. Also, obviously I've been one of them. In 2005, I was in high school and dating this guy named Max, who volunteered for the fire department. His dad was fire chief. All the minor volunteers were given a rotation of duties. Now, normally, a minor volunteer wouldn't be asked to patrol at the asylum, but since Max's dad was chief, and Max had been volunteering for three years now, and they were understaffed because of a massive storm that knocked down trees, flooding, and power outages, 
He had asked if Max could patrol the tunnels for a week to help out. This was our chance. I was in the middle of finals, but was done with school for the year that Thursday. I thought a cool end of school year exploration of the building would be an epic summer starter. He said he'd let me know after his first night what it was like and if I'd even be able to sneak down there. On Tuesday morning, I heard from him before I went to class saying that the tunnels were cool and creepy. He said he patrolled alone, so I should be able to sneak down there with him for that bit, but might not be able to patrol with him on the actual grounds perimeter. Which was fine, all I really cared about were the tunnels. He also said to bring a flashlight because there was a short period of time where he had to turn off the light before turning on another, and the wiring was all wonky. On Wednesday morning, he said there was a smell down there and I should bring water shoes. Some of the flooding had backed up into the tunnels and the smell was likely a sewage break or drowned rats. The water wasn't very deep, but it was gross to him. On Thursday morning, he told me to meet him on the path behind the asylum at 10pm. It ran along the river. I was a little creeped out by the idea of walking alone on that path at night, but decided it would be fine. I told my friend Anna where I'd be and said I'd text her a code word every hour to let her know I was okay. The code was a line of lyrics from a Tenacious D song. One word each hour, sin in order. I may like creepy things, but I'm a huge pansy. I dressed in ghost hunter stuff, i.e. all black, with a hood and my rain boots. I held my keys in my hands like a weapon. You know, that thing you do in case someone attacks you and you think, I'll jab them with my keys and they'll leave me alone. Knock on wood. Max was waiting there when I got there, so I didn't have to wait alone, which was great. We started weaving our way through the property, all the while avoiding light posts. We got to the entrance. It was one of those concrete entryways that immediately led to descending stairs. We headed in. The usual graffiti was present, iterations of curse words and penis sketches, and a bit of it that was just the word no repeating. I turned on my flashlight and we headed down. At the base of the stairs, it smelled like absolute crap. It was also at least 10 degrees cooler. He clicked on the light switch at our end and we started off. There was nothing remarkable about the tunnel. It was just a bunch of empty, mostly doorless rooms, an inch or so of putrid smelling water, and a few pieces of destroyed furniture. I routinely looked through every room, and he waited in the main tunnel. The rooms were ten-foot cubes. I both expected to find something horrible, and also feared I'd find something ghastly. Most of the rooms were harmless, just kind of gross. Honestly, I was slightly disappointed. It hadn't been the adrenaline rush I had hoped for. There were four rooms left at the other end that looked particularly beat up. He explained that they had been holding cells for patients that were having episodes and needed isolation. These were the only rooms with intact doors. I made him come in with me because I was paranoid that the door would suddenly slam shut and there was no way I was going to be hunted alone. I started inspecting. Nothing interesting in the first two rooms. In the third, I found some indents on the bottom corner of the back wall. After inspecting for a bit, 
I realized they were fingernail marks. The worst part about them was imagining the position someone would have to be in to make them, crouching on the floor with their back to the door. I found a few more spots of claw marks, all bundled together, marks going in all different directions. Most of them were clustered around the bottom of the room or corners, but there was one grouping of scratches about nine feet up on a wall. I guess maybe the person was standing on a bed and just going to town, but the unnatural height bothered me. At this point, that was enough. I really didn't need a lot of creepy stuff to fill my quota, so I was ready to leave. Max understood, but also thought I should check out the last room, since I had looked in all the others. I wanted to leave, but my OCD was curiosity was like, you totally need to look in that last room, you have to complete the dungeon crawl. So I went in, and made him stand right by me. We started going over all the walls, but found nothing. I kept going back to the back corner, since that's where I'd found the first marks in the other room. I bent down to look at what I thought was another mark on the wall and noticed there were marks on the floor. It was hard to see since there was water all over, but by swishing my foot back and forth, I could make it out. The word, no, repeating. Now I was done. I stood up and turned to Max and then stopped. We had been so focused on looking at the floor with the flashlight, we didn't realize the light in the tunnel had gone out. I all out screamed. Max grabbed the light from my hand and charged toward the opening. I followed in a panic. He looked one way, then the other with the light before dashing toward the stairwell to hit the corresponding light switch. I waited in the hallway, pressed against the wall, eyes down. I didn't want to close them even though I couldn't see anything anyway, but I didn't want to look around. I was afraid I'd see a shape in the claw mark room across from me. Moments later, Max had the tunnel light on and was grabbing my arm. Thank God he's an emergency responder and could just act on instinct, because I was useless. We ran up the stairs and out the other side. I had another brief moment of panic when he took the flashlight and went back down to turn the light back off to complete his patrol. I thought for sure he would be pulled out of view by an invisible force or that some terrible creature would come crawling up the stairs after me, but it was nothing like that. Thing is, I'd never go back, but Max had one more night on patrol. I am a certified nursing assistant, CNA for short. I have been attending the needs of the elderly for over five years now and I have seen some of the strangest behavior from the near dying. There is one instance that I can never truly explain. I felt like some of you might be able to shed some light on the matter, so I took the time to write down my experience. If you have any idea of what I might be dealing with, please let me know. I'm currently unable to find an answer, and I'm unsure if I should keep this creepy bird. Madeline Wright was 92 years old. I can honestly say that she was the sweetest old lady I had ever met. 
She rarely had visitors, but every Tuesday she would receive a package full of peanut butter cookies. The package had no return address, and Madeline would claim they came from her grandson. Most of our patients would gladly consume any baked goods that were sent, but Madeline saved these particular treats for her pet. We had a policy about small pets, that as long as they could be contained within the room, they were allowed. Madeline had a macaw named Pete. Almost every day when I would make my rounds, Madeline would be sitting by the window, sliding small pieces of cookie through the cage. Pete would nibble them and squawk in appreciation. I would check the room for anything that needed immediate attention, speak with Madeline to make sure she did not need anything, and exit soon after. She would watch with her little smile as I left, and as soon as I passed through the door, she would begin to whisper to Pete. The routine was so comforting, but I always wondered what the two of them talked about. Christmas came, and most of our residents were congregating in the common room. They played games and exchanged gifts. We passed out Christmas cookies and non-alcoholic eggnog. It was the best party we could provide, complete with cheesy Christmas music. I stood among the elderly, admiring the freshly decorated tree, and I realized that Madeline had not attended our little get-together. I made it a point to check on her every day, even if it was not my duty for the day. So, I decided to take a trip down the second hall and made my way to her room. Madeline sat in the dimly lit room by Pete's cage. She was speaking to the bird, but quickly fell quiet when I entered. She gave me that same sweet smile and asked how I was doing. I assured her I was fine and asked why she was not participating in the festivities. I learned that her late husband had passed during the Christmas season, and the celebration only reminded her of that fact. I felt so horrible at the thought and decided to spend the rest of my night keeping her company. That was the first night I was introduced to Pete formally. This little lady had developed a true friendship with her bird. They knew everything about each other and Pete had a personality that shined when you engaged him. I could ask him anything about Madeline and learn exactly what I needed to know. I listened to full stories about Madeline's history including on embarrassing memory that involved Madeline losing her trousers on a trip to the river. Madeline blushed as Pete retold the story and I tried to hold back my laughter. It was the most enjoyable night of my career and I wish I could have had more of those. Madeline passed shortly after New Year's. I know I should not have watched her being wheeled out by the paramedics, but since she had no family, I felt like she needed someone. I would be lying if I said I did not cry. It was the hardest part of my job. I hated seeing our patients die and each time it became a little harder. When the room was empty, it was my job to clean it and remove any personal items that remained. My eyes immediately fell on Pete's cage. He stood perched on his swing and stared at me. His eyes seemed cloudy and full of remorse. I could tell he felt the loss even more than I did. Pete took resistance in our faculty lounge. My fellow nurses took turns speaking with him and feeding him. All of them enjoyed the constant reminder of Madeline's life, but some of them made comments about strange stories the bird would tell. I chalked it up to idle rumors and gossip until I heard one of them myself. 
I was grabbing a cup of coffee while on a late shift and Pete turned to me to tell me that I should check room 204. I found it odd that he even knew how to say those words and dismissed it as something he might have picked up from Madeline. I began my rounds and an announcement played through our intercom system asking for emergency medical attention to none other than room 204. The coincidence piqued my curiosity, so I made my way to that room. Mr. Perkins had always been of the jovial nature and most of our staff had enjoyed his company. He was a jokester and I was sure it was some new prank he had come up with. When I entered the doorway, I realized that this was far more than that. Mr. Perkins was seizing and his body shook violently. Several of the nursing staff attempted to stabilize but within minutes, his body fell still. Mr. Perkins was pronounced dead five minutes later. My emotions ran wild and I needed to compose myself. I found my way back to the break room and took a seat with my cup of coffee. My hands trembled as I took a sip and tried to push back my tears. I sat thinking of how terrible it must be to grow old and be forgotten in a place like this. All of this swam in my head as I heard Peek squawk from the corner of the room and I remembered what he had said to me. I stood slowly, leaving my coffee on the table. I approached his cage and asked if he knew that Mr. Perkins was going to die. I received a simple, yes, as a reply. I stared at the bright blues and yellows of his feathers and stared into his dark, beady eyes. His tongue licked at his beak as if hungry, so I dug through our bag of birdseed to feed him. The pebbles plopped to the bottom of the cage, but Pete seemed uninterested in them. He simply stared at me, and I could only wonder what he wanted. I thought to question further, but I was afraid of the answer I might receive. I dug through Madeline's uncollected belongings to find a few remaining peanut butter cookies. I returned to the cage, crumbled them into tiny pieces, and passed them through the bars. Pete gobbled the crumbs up and gave me an excited, Thank you. The following day, a letter was presented to me by my employer. There was no return address or any identifying information. She simply told me that the letter had been left at the front desk and had, had been asked to be delivered to me personally. I found my way back to the break room and carefully opened the letter. Inside, I found the scribblings of the late Madeline Wright. Apparently, she had written the letter after our Christmas together. She had been so moved by my kindness that she wanted to give me her favorite possession, her bird Pete. I read over the letter multiple times and looked back at the tiny cage. The bird fluttered its wings and I stood to greet him. I pulled out another cookie and fed it to him. That night, I brought Pete home. If he was legally mine, I wanted to personally take care of him. I cleared off a space on an end table within my sitting room. The cage fit nicely, and it would be the first thing I saw when I entered in the evening. I knew it would be the perfect place for Pete, and I found myself sitting by him and carrying on a conversation. It was interesting having a bird ask me questions about my life and commenting on the events. I found myself laughing at the quirky comments that Pete would come up with. When the hour became late, I bid the bird goodnight and headed for my bedroom. 
A squawk caused me to pause and turn back to the cage. Pete stared straight at me and said, Room 103. When I arrived at work the next day, I immediately visited room 103. Dolores Wilson sat on her bed talking with her daughter. The daughter turned to me and asked if her mother had been receiving her daily medication. I stammered as I explained that I was not her regular nurse, but promised I would have her attendant come by to speak to her. The two of them were very confused, but I had seen that Mrs. Wilson was fine. I left the room and stepped back to the nurse's station and relayed the message that Mrs. Wilson's daughter had questions for her attending nurse. I started my rounds and let the eerie feeling of what Pete had said the night before fade away. My shift was almost over when the announcement came for emergency assistance. I did not need to know the number before I started running to 103. When I arrived, the attending nurse stopped me before I entered. She had tears in her eyes. I knew the result, but I asked anyway. Mrs. Wilson had experienced a massive heart attack, and they were unable to resuscitate. I instinctively wrapped my arms around the woman, rubbing her back and trying to console her. The entire time, my mind went back to Pete and the last thing he said to me. When I arrived home, I went straight to my kitchen. Pete watched as I passed, but made no comment. I grabbed the ingredients from the cupboard and began baking. I was tired and ready for bed, but I wanted to get these cookies done before I found rest. An hour and a half later, I pulled a tray of freshly baked peanut butter cookies from my oven. I let them cool and broke them in tiny pieces. I returned to my sitting room and fed Pete. He took two cookies down quickly, and I could swear he smiled at me. If birds can smile. I made my way to bed, still thinking of the events of the day. The main reason I am writing this is I think the bird living in my house can tell when someone will die. That fact is enough to scare anyway, and I am not sure how to handle it. I woke this morning and prepared for work. I made my cup of coffee, and I made my way to Pete's cage. I made a routine of giving him a cookie before leaving for work. He quickly ate the crumbs I offered, and when I went to exit my front door, he gave me a loud squawk again. It caused me to turn and look at him, as usual. He stared at me for a moment, my hand still resting on the doorknob. His words have caused me to return to my room and write this all down. I don't know how long I need to wait, but Pete's exact words were, don't leave the house. I'm writing this down so that maybe someone will understand that I didn't do it. Not really. I wasn't really there. Something is wrong with me. I've lost grip on reality. The way I've been experiencing things isn't the way it actually happens. Maybe it's the other way around. I don't know. Please understand. It's not my fault. It started off simple. One morning when I was making coffee, I put the milk in the cupboard instead of the fridge when I was done with it. I brushed it off as being tired. After all, 
I've heard of it happening to others when they're tired. The thing is, I genuinely believed I put the milk in the fridge. I saw the fridge, felt the resistance of the magnetic seal, and felt the cold air on my skin as I put the milk away. It was so real, but the sour smell from the cupboard with the pots and pans and the absence of milk in the fridge the next day told me otherwise. This should have been a sign. I should have listened to the gut feeling that told me something was wrong. Plenty of other little things like this happened over the next few weeks. All things I can make an excuse for. I had just woken up. I was overtired. I was stressed. I wasn't paying any attention. That sort of thing. The problem was the incidents became worse and worse. I was taking the bus home late one evening. It was the same bus I always take. The same route. And I got off at the same stop. The walk from the stop seemed to take a bit longer than usual, but I was sore from a workout so I assumed I was just walking a little slower than usual. Everything around me looked the way it always did. The sidewalk and street were brightly lit by the streetlights above. The blue house was to my left, like it always was at this point in my walk. I felt like I was walking through molasses, almost as if my feet were sticking to the ground. I was just tired, I thought. My sore legs were making it feel like the ground was sticky, not the concrete sidewalk beneath my feet. As I passed the house with the tire swing, I tripped. I landed face first into water. I struggled to stand up and I realized I was knee deep in a creek I had never seen before. Once I dragged myself out of the creek, I realized I didn't know where I was. I was in a part of town I'd never been in before, and I had no recollection of how I got there. All my mind would provide me was the image of the same bus I always take, the stop I always get off at, and the same streets I walk night by night. I managed to find my way to a busy street where a police officer stopped me. I explained to him that I'd just gotten a bit lost and tripped while in the dark. I didn't tell him what actually happened. I didn't want to have to go to the hospital for a psych evaluation. He was kind enough to give me a ride home. When I got home from this ordeal, I showered and tried to convince myself that I was just overly stressed. I mean, it wasn't something for me to worry about. I just needed a good night's sleep. I didn't really believe it. I knew something was wrong. I didn't have time to deal with it on my busy schedule. I should have made time. Maybe if I had, I wouldn't be in this situation. I started having nightmares. What if I lost track of where I was or what I was doing and I did something horrible? I couldn't sleep. I became irritable. I alienated what family I had. I lost friends. My work suffered. I needed to do something about what was happening to me, but I was too afraid. I had already lost my friends and family. I was coming close to losing my job. I didn't want to lose my freedom. I thought that if I sought help, I would be locked away in a mental institution for the rest of my life as a danger to society. At the same time, I was worried I would do something to get me incarcerated or have no memory of doing such a thing. A few days after ending up in the creek, I told off my boss at work. 
He called me into a meeting, and I apparently lost it on him in front of all my co-workers. I supposedly called him all sorts of names and said some really terrible things. Things you can never take back. All I remember is going to work, spending the day doing my desk job, and going home. I don't remember ever seeing my boss. I found out the next day that I had been fired when I was escorted out of the building by security and told that if I showed up again, the police would be contacted and I would be arrested. The nightmares became worse and worse. I decided to take a walk one night when I couldn't sleep to try to clear my head. I went into the nearby park to stargaze. I sat there for a while, trying to pick out constellations amidst the light pollution. I heard a rustle from the bushes behind me and suddenly I was being attacked by a coyote. That might sound odd, but I live in a suburb on the edge of the city that sometimes gets coyotes. It felt like I was fighting for my life and I thought after getting a good punch in that I had scared it off. That's when I came to, so to speak. At my feet was someone's pet dog. I was in someone's backyard, not the park and killed their dog, not fought a coyote. I ran home as fast as I could. My biggest fear came true. The next morning, the owners of the dogs were on the news talking about what happened and offering a reward to help find the person who killed their pet. They were offering a reward to find me. The police also were looking for the person to arrest them. There was a warrant out for my arrest thought they didn't know it was me specifically. I think that must have been the breaking point. Three days after that and onwards, I have no memory of anything. The date on this computer tells me that it's been four months since the incident with the dog. Right now, I am in a house I don't recognize. I don't think I'm even in the same province anymore. My hands are covered in blood and making the keys on the keyboard stick as I type this. The blood isn't mine. I can only assume it's from the woman and child tied up in the kitchen. It's not my fault. I don't remember doing it. I didn't do it. I'm leaving tonight. I'm going to borrow their shower and some fresh clothes and then I'm gone. I don't know where I will go, I have nowhere to go, but I can't stay here. I won't be arrested for something I don't remember doing. Goodbye. I've been lucky my whole life. My parents recall me having luck first was when I was five and I ran out into the road after a ball. A woman was speeding through my neighborhood and right as I ran out she swerved into a tree. She died instantly. My parents believed that I have a guardian angel always watching out for me. Ever since I can remember, I felt like I was always being watched. Whenever I would tell my parents they wouldn't take me seriously and would joke that I needed to be sent to the mental hospital down the road. I would always dismiss it, thinking that it was nothing. I didn't want to end up in there. 
The mental hospital was considered normal to the people in my town. Everyone worked there, or knew someone that did. The adults thought of it as great job opportunities for the youth in the town and us kids had something to make scary stories about. Everyone heard rumors about the patients there, but no one knew what kind of people were really there. We were told that there was no one to worry about there, everyone was taken care of. The workers never left the hospital because they needed to take care of the patients 24-7. It was all part of the plan the government had for us. One of the disadvantages we had from the hospital was that once every two weeks the patients were given free roaming time for 12 hours. The doors were unlocked and they could venture into the town. Everyone had to lock their doors, put guards on the windows, go into a safe place, and the children could not look outside. Cameras were set up so the adults could watch their houses and call the authorities if any main laws were being broken, but they couldn't look directly out of the windows. No one wanted to ever risk it with the fear of horrible things they could do to you. When I was 15, a teacher was hired to teach us about different mental illnesses and how to deal with someone that has one. All of us just believed that it was to train us if we ever wanted jobs in the hospital. I thought if I got a good grade in the class, I could do an internship in there and I could finally learn who was in there. A couple months into the class, the teacher told us we were going to observe the deranged people running in our clean streets. We were given permission slips to have our parents sign so we could stay the night at the school and watch them. When I brought mine home to my parents, they told me I couldn't and that some of my friends' parents wouldn't let them either. Not witnessing them would be the best for everyone. Disappointed and angry, I called one of my friends and they told me that they couldn't go either. That's when we hatched what we thought was the greatest plan in history. When we got to school the next day, we handed in our permission slips with forged signatures, an alibi that we were sure that wouldn't fail us. Our parents thought we were at each other's houses and his parents were gone that weekend. We were going to really see them tonight after all these curiosity-filled years. We were staying on the top floor of our school in the boys' locker room. Everyone had sleeping bags and the school supplied snacks. It didn't feel like we were going to watch some crazy people run around the streets until a police officer came and blockaded the windows and gave our teacher a shotgun. Then it started to sink in. The principal gave us a few safety tips when he brought in TVs and that was it. We were really going to see them. At 5 o'clock sharp, they turned on the TV and the screen started to show live video of the streets around the hospital. You could start to see the doors and some windows opening on the building. People were crawling out of the second story windows, scaling the brick walls like spiders. I didn't know how to react to that. I wanted to cry and throw up at the same time. They were sickly looking and looked unwashed even from the far distance we were seeing them from. They crawled around and seemed like they were eating things they were finding on the ground. One went off screen and we started to hear a loud gnawing sound. The next thing we see is an elderly man's face grinning into the camera. He brought his finger up to his lips and made a gargling noise. He held out his hand and spit out a few bloody teeth. The camera switched to a street by the school. 
A man in an off-white jumpsuit was whistling an eerie tune while walking down the middle of the road. He seemed the most normal of the bunch, but something about him was off. He was always looking straight into a camera. When he finally reached the school, he sat on one of the benches outside, facing a camera. He stopped whistling and started talking. You couldn't hear him at least, but he realized that he wasn't speaking loud enough, so he raised his voice. I had no clue how he knew it, but he did. He was talking about how much he missed someone and that he needed to talk to them before they brainwashed that person. He sounded somewhat sane. What was wrong with him? Why was he even there? I had so many questions, but I couldn't get myself to say anything. I was so caught up in my own thoughts, I didn't realize everyone was staring at me. The man on the TV was asking me to come out and play. He knew I was in here. He knew I was watching him. He knew who I was. I remember watching him get up and walk all the way back to the hospital, stopping at my house, knocking at my bedroom window and smiling. I didn't think I could be any more scared, but he knew no bounds. I got letters telling me I was his child and he loved me very much. He talked about how much fun we would have together and how much he missed me. He signed every one of the letters with, Your Playmate. Every time he was let out of the hospital, he would knock on my window and ask, Won't you come out and play? I saved your life. I couldn't handle it anymore. The weird stares at school and the rumors. My parents tried to comfort me and told me I should have stayed at home that night. I had to do something about it. I convinced my family that I needed to stay in my room as they let them out. I stayed in my room and waited. The knocks were soft at first, but then gradually got louder. He started his insane little chant. Play outside with me. He repeated to himself until I could not handle it. I screamed and threw open the curtains. I knew you would want to play with me. I'm your guardian angel. I told him to get out of my life and that I hated him. I never wanted to see him again. He started to get teary-eyed and ran away. A few weeks later, there was a newspaper article about a man in an insane asylum that had committed suicide. He had slit his throat with a sharpened table leg, and with his own blood, he had written on the walls, Why didn't you play with me? I woke up from what I assumed to be a murky, drug-induced sleep. My eyes began dashing themselves to and from before I can even get my bearings. As whatever put me to sleep wears off, my senses began to return to me. I wriggle a bit and hear a little pop. I'm stiff, most likely from being in an uncomfortable position for too long. I let out the slightest groan. I'm surprised at the sound of my own voice, the sound of anything really. My throat is scratchy, 
Even in that small sound, my vocal cords ache. My nose fills with the sharp stench of acid, followed by peroxide and blood. I sniff again and my throat starts to burn even more, both dry and wet. It hits me more than anything. Blood. There's no denying it. My eyes scan the room again and I see chipped yellow paint. There is a faint hint of familiarity in the fact that it's exactly the same yellow that they used in the asylums. Maybe that's where I am. I shudder a little, seeing that aside from the paint, the walls are splotched with what is either rust or the blood I simulated before. The room is windowless, to my dismay. The only exit is a sturdy door that is more than likely to be locked. Of course, I feel a wave of panic. Let me tell you, anxiety disorder is a pain. Paranoia is just as bad. I try to pull myself into a sitting position. It's futile, however. My wrists and ankles are restrained. I try once more. Cracked and dry leather just bites into my skin. Third time's the charm, I think to myself, and I try once more, yanking hard. The leather looks to be in bad shape, but sadly it holds. Tired and with dwindling hope, I fall back. It lands on what I think is an operating cot. My face hits the cold metal. My eyes land onto something else. I see a boy. He appears to be about 13, 14, as he laws his head to the side. Blonde hair falls off of his face. Slowly, his eyes flutter open and they do the same things my green ones did a few moments before. They flit around the room for a few minutes, and finally they land on to me. We exchange panicked glances. He stares at me a little longer, as if to say, Who are you? Or, Where the hell are we? I shrug a bit, and do my best to give him a sympathetic smile, as if to say, Your guess is as good as mine. He tries to break his binding, they look similar to mine, and both wearing strength, but maybe he's stronger and can get out of them. No luck. I watch him try around 20 times, but he can't get out of them. He falls back, exhausted and panting. He looks hopeless as well. We look at each other again and are startled by the sound of footsteps. I naturally freak out as I would around any other stranger. My breathing grows rapid and my heart rate speeds up. I shake. The footsteps sound precise and measured. Maybe it's the police? I question in my head to no one particular, or I think maybe it's someone who was here with us and broke out. While these are nice points of optimism, they do nothing to help my panic. All hope of that prospect is crushed away as I see someone step through the door. A doctor, wearing a surgical mask and a long white lab coat. Even though you can't see much of him, through the latex paper I can see a wide grin. A cold shiver ascends up my spine. I'm still in panic mode, but I try my hardest not to heave or wheeze or whimper in front of this stranger. Instead, I force myself to look into his shrewd and sickly gleaming eyes. Swiftly, the doctor moves to the boy next to me, and against my best efforts, my fear begins to rise higher and higher. Seemingly out of nowhere, he pulls out a scalpel, 
I watch it gleam under the dim and sharp lights in the room. The doctor begins to lift up the boy's shirt. He folds it around the boy's neck neatly, and he begins carving in the boy's stomach with surgical precision. He doesn't cut deep enough to do much damage, just a maim. It occurs to me that this doctor wants to torture us, most likely until death. My eyes shift up to the boy's face. His pretty blue eyes are clenched shut in pain. His dark lashes have turned into tear-filled spikes. Poor kid, I think to myself. I know I can't just sit here and do nothing, but then I think, I'm in a position where I can't do anything. I take another look at the boy. His hair has been pushed off of his face, leaving him exposed. Admiration pierced through me in spite of it all. The boy's mouth is clenched into a tight line, and all I can hear from him are faint grunts of effort. He refuses to give his execution or the satisfaction of his screams. This goes on for what can have been 20 minutes, yet feels like 20 centuries. With an obviously practiced flick of his wrist, the doctor throws his bloody tool into a rusty trash bin in the corner. Then he pulls out a more jagged and menacing companion for the remainder of his job. He cuts into the boy with his saw-like weapon, giggling like a child with a new toy. Upon the first cut, the boy lets out a yelp of pain, sending the doctor into a larger, laughing fit. I try to fight back into the hysterics rising in the back of my throat. He sounds like a kicked dog, that boy. The doctor is artfully hacking away at his patient and is enjoying every bit. The boy, now having gone past his breaking point, is screaming like a madman. The tortured cacophony of his pain is no longer standable. Stop it! I hear myself cry. I regret it instantly, knowing that I won't help either of us. I've most likely just made it worse. The doctor pauses to stare at me curiously. Then, he flashes me one of those sick, bastard smiles of his. I want to rip his face off. Please, stop, I say instead, fighting the malice out of my voice. I think that maybe I can reason with him. For a second, all that is left to fill the silence of the room is the boy's ragged, relieved breathing. Soon enough, that too is silenced. How it happens is a little muddy. I'm not sure if one of the other two people in the room told me not to look, or if I just didn't have the heart to at the moment. But somehow I found myself staring at the bleak gray ceiling of the room. Next, I hear the sickening sound of spraying blood, and the eerie drip-drip that comes afterward. The doctor has finished his task, that I know to be true. I whimper, knowing the boy is gone. In the hopelessness of it all, I begin to cry. I know what you're thinking. Someone like me. Cry? Whimper? Kind of of a far-off thought. But think of this. You'll most likely do the same thing, if not worse. Should you be put into a similar situation? The panic shoots through me again, along with its companions. Misery, anger, and fear. I begin to wheeze as my chest tightens. My lungs cannot get enough air. The doctor is already giggling like a little girl. 
I know what he's going to do next. He has discharged his first patient. Now he will go on to his next one. Me. My friends and I used to do a lot of geocaching after our senior year in high school. For those who don't know what geocaching is, it's essentially a worldwide scavenger hunt. People will select sites and conceal a geocache, somewhere unobtrusive, then post GPS coordinates on geocaching websites, where other searchers can download the coordinates and locate the cache. Usually, People who have found the object, often it's a chest or something hollow, will leave a note or small personal memento for future researchers to find and appreciate. There are several types of geocaches, and most of them are thematic in nature. An example, scenic destinations, romantic sites, hard-to-reach areas, etc. This story begins when my friends and I decided to try a series of purportedly haunted locales within about an hour's drive of our hometown. It began innocently enough. Most of the sites had spooky backstories that were, of course, entirely fabricated. So we had a great time scaring the piss out of each other and generally creeping ourselves out. We'd begun searching after the sun had set to enhance the creep factor. But by around midnight, most of our large group had dwindled off and gone their separate ways. When we reached our last cord, there was just myself, Rebecca, Kevin, and Evan left, and we were determined to knock it off our list. Rebecca was our guide for the night, in charge of putting the coordinates and reading us the backstory behind each site. So, while I drove, she began reading about the last one out loud to the rest of us. Now, I'm paraphrasing here, but it was something along the lines of Henkel Asylum. Constructed in the early 1900s, the James Henkel Asylum was built to house a burgeoning population of the criminally insane. Men who had committed vile crimes, rape, murder, torture, without signs of remorse, were deemed mentally unstable and sent to this facility for further study and rehabilitation. Once committed, very few criminals were ever released back into society, and those that were usually had been given frontal lobotomies, a popular experimental procedure at the time, or electroshock therapy, both of which rendered the patient nearly brain dead capable of only performing the most rudimentary tasks. Stories Contemporary visitors to the asylum report hearing banging noises, cell doors opening and closing, and hearing cackling laughter that is abruptly cut short. It was pretty standard fare compared to the rest of the sites we'd visited that night, and we naturally had a good time psyching each other out for the next 15 minutes while I drove us to the asylum. We'd all heard about it. It was in our local area, after all, 
and we knew it had been condemned and abandoned since as long as any of us could remember. So we figured it'd be a great place to run around and be reckless teenagers without risk of getting yelled at by the cops. When we finally arrived, it looked like something straight out of one of those cheesy B-movies they show on sci-fi. Chain-link fence with barbed wire around the perimeter, two guard towers flanking the main gate, which was of course chained and locked shut with a big no trespassing sign. The asylum itself was decrepit, looking like it hadn't been touched for decades, which was surprising since we grew up in a pretty nice area where the municipal lawmakers tried to keep everything looking spiffy for the tourists. Needless to say, we promptly ignored the sign on the front gate and hauled ourselves over, cameras and GPS in hand, and walked towards the asylum. Now, given our attitude towards the previous sites, you've probably gathered that I'm somewhat of a skeptic. I believe that there are paranormal things that can't be explained, yet. But I'm not exactly summoning demons in front of a bathroom mirror either. So when we opened the main door to the asylum, conveniently unlocked, I dismissed the cold burst of wind as just stale, pent-up air rushing out after being trapped inside for so long. My friends' bravado, however, quickly disappeared and they began shuffling their feet nervously at the entrance, hesitant to cross that invisible threshold. I took point, shiving them along with prodding taunts, and eventually everyone was inside. It wasn't as bad as I thought it'd be. Things were relatively clean, and the entire building looked like it had been gutted. The paint was peeling, tiles popping up here and there, and the metal trim near the baseboards of the wall was in desperate need of some rust be gone. But aside from that, the place was entirely empty. No crazy-ass chairs with leather straps, no gurneys laying haphazardly around just an old reception desk and two hallways leading off to the different wings. We explored for a few minutes, freaking ourselves out whenever we heard an old pipe rattle or rat squeak, but otherwise, it was relatively uneventful. Our fears safely suppressed by the presence of each other, we began to get more adventurous, opening doors and peeking inside. The rooms were all empty, of course. Whatever company had been contracted to clear the place out did a pretty decent job of removing any creepy decor. Bravado returning by the minute. Evan and Kevin dropped back, without Rebecca or me noticing. They began running around, making noises to try and scare us. I'm not gonna lie. It worked until I realized they were gone and probably the cause of all the racket then returned laughing and breathless to a decidedly paler Rebecca. She seemed to be a lot more put off by the whole place than the rest of us, or at least she didn't hide it as well. She quietly suggested that we leave. Not to be outdone by the other guys of the group, I told her she was more than welcome to wait in the car if she wanted, but I was going to stick around for a few more minutes. Exacerbated but defeated, she finally caved 
and followed us where the GPS was leading, the second floor. This is where I started to feel genuinely scared. Before, I was just kind of creeped out, but there was something about the whole floor that literally gave me the shivers, despite it being a warm summer night. We started opening doors like before, but we were all a lot more sober about it. I guess I wasn't the only one who was feeling weird. Finally, about midway through the hall, we opened the door to a room, and there, lying in the middle of the floor, was an honest-to-God straitjacket. I'm not bullshitting you. Every other room was devoid of objects, but there it was. A fucking straitjacket. In the middle of the floor of some random-ass room, in a condemned mental asylum. We all kind of looked at each other with raised eyebrows, as if to say, Uh, guys? You seeing what I'm seeing? And of course, trying to be a macho man to show off for Rebecca, I piped up with the most ridiculous idea I could think of at the time. Dude, I'm gonna put it on. Years of horror flicks and creepypasta should have trained me to not put on that creepy straitjacket in the creepy hall, in the creepy asylum. But teenage dumb fuckery won over, and once the words were out, I couldn't just wuss out. Nobody said anything. They just kind of looked at me expectantly, waiting to see if I'd follow through with my boast. Determined not to be called a pussy for the remainder of the night, I walked forward into the room and bent down to pick up the moth-ridden restraining device. As I got closer, though, I noticed it wasn't moth-ridden at all, but was actually in pretty decent condition. That is, compared to the rest of the place, which, as I've mentioned, was in shambles. I mean, it had a few stains here and there, but it didn't really smell and it seemed intact enough to put on. As soon as I picked it up, though, I got this overwhelming sense of dread. You know, that drop in the pit of your stomach, right as you go over the lip of a roller coaster. That feeling in the bottom of your gut that says, I'm gonna die. I just know it. Yeah, well, I got that. Really strong and totally ignored it. My desire not to die was outweighed, as it often is in teenagers, by my need to look cool for my friends. So I slipped my hands in the sleeves, one at a time, until it hung loosely from my shoulders. Now, if you've ever seen a straitjacket, you know that you can't tie it up for yourself. The whole point is to essentially cross your arms across your chest and tie the sleeves behind your back to prevent whoever's inside from moving their arms, presumably to stop them from hurting themselves or others. So as I stood there in the middle of the room, I called out to Rebecca. Hey, Becca, help me tie this thing off. She looked, if you'll excuse the pun, pale as a ghost. But she managed to squeak out. I don't... I don't think this is a good idea. But again, after some prodding and encouraging, 
I convinced her to begin tying the sleeves behind my back. Evan and Kevin just stood in the doorway. Expressions a mixture of admiration and incredulity. At that point in time, I felt like a badass. For about three seconds. As soon as Rebecca finished up the last lace, the door to the cell slammed shut, right in Kevin and Evan's faces. I never felt a breeze, and when I asked them later, both of them fervently denied closing it themselves. Skeptic that I am, I still chalk it up to us leaving the front door open and changing air pressures and all that. But it scared the piss out of us nonetheless. Then I felt a pressure on my chest, like someone was sitting on it, or as if someone was pulling the sleeves tighter behind me. And it began to get harder to breathe. I couldn't even summon enough air to whisper, much less call out for help. My vision narrowed to tiny specks, and I swear I heard someone laughing shrilly as I neared unconsciousness. The pressure increased with a sudden tug, and my world went black. When I woke up, my vision was foggy, or at least I thought it was, until I realized it wasn't just foggy. It was dark, like staring through a lens that's been collecting spot. I blinked a few times, and the darkness wavered but didn't dissipate. Now I've passed out and blacked out before, but whenever I woke up it was nothing like this. Either my vision gradually cleared up, or it was blurry, but never in my life have I been able to recreate the shadowy haze I saw in the asylum that night. Then, from the murky depths, two small pinpoints of light appeared, a few inches in front of my face, glaring a lurid red, and a dim echo of the laughter I heard before surrounded me. As soon as they appeared, however, they were replaced by two brilliant shafts of incandescence, Evan and Kevin, shining flashlights down on my face. The last thing I remember hearing before I lost consciousness was Rebecca's scream and the door banging open, which probably explains why those two were standing over me with flashlights in hand. I gradually became aware of a dull murmur that I recognized as Rebecca asking me, please wake up, please wake up, please wake up, as she shook me. She just kept saying it over and over again, kept sobbing and shaking me. When my vision cleared enough, I glanced over and saw that her eyes were completely red, like she'd been crying for a while. Trying to muster some shred of manliness, I found myself speaking in a surprisingly calm voice, given how I was actually feeling. I remember distinctly what I said word for word. Get those fucking flashlights out of my face, you douchebags. Expecting a laugh or at least some reciprocal insults, I was kind of shocked when they just looked at each other quizzically, seemingly surprised. You're... You're okay? Evan asked incredulously. Yeah, why the hell wouldn't I be? Becca just tied the things too tight. I couldn't breathe so I passed out. 
How long was I out for anyway, I inquired. Apparently, it had been long enough for them to untie the straitjacket, allowing me to rub a hand across my face. Another shared look of disbelief. Dude, Kevin began slowly. You've been out for like 15 minutes. We were about to call 911. We kept shaking you. Evan even tried pinching you so hard he drew blood, but you wouldn't wake up. I felt the cold chill run down my spine, and the straitjacket, hanging limply from my shoulders, suddenly began to feel a bit tighter. Hastening to pull it off, I tried not to look panicked as I threw it to the corner of the room. Rebecca just sat there, still shaking and crying a little bit. And in spite of the ordeal I'd just gone through, I had enough sense to go over and try to comfort her. We left that room without a word. Geocache be damned, and walked back to the car in complete silence, broken only by the occasional sniffle from Rebecca. The sun started coming up, and as I dropped everyone off at their respective homes, we said quiet goodbyes. Rebecca was the last stop, before I finally made the trip home myself. Being the gentleman that I am, I walked her to her door, but she paused at the entry and looked me in the eye. In the light of the gray dawn, I could see her eyes were still reddened from all of the crying. She was very quiet and she said, I have to ask you something. Yeah, sure, what is it, I said. Half expecting another, you sure you're alright? Like I've been getting the whole ride home. She surprised me by asking, Do you know how long it took Evan and Kevin to get the door open? Her eyes held a look that I could never forget. It was raw fear. Something happened in that fraction of time between me blacking out and them getting in there that had absolutely terrified her. And seeing that look, I realized... I was blacked out for 15 minutes. How long was she alone in that room? No, I replied slowly. How long? Five minutes. They said it took five minutes for them to open that stupid door. I was in there and I saw you and I saw... She broke off, another sob stopping her mid-sentence. At that point, I didn't want to know. I still don't want to know. I gripped her by the shoulders and said firmly, Rebecca, it doesn't matter. No matter what you saw, I'm here. You're here. We're both safe. It doesn't matter. Nothing bad will happen. I promise. She just nodded numbly, opened her door, and walked inside her house. The next time I saw her, she was back to her usual self. But whenever I bring up that night to her, she freezes up and turns to stone, refusing to discuss it. I stand by what I said before. I don't know what happened to that room. And I don't ever want to know. But I still have nightmares about those two glowing red lights in the darkness. And sometimes, as I lapse into sleep, I hear faint echoes of shrill laughter 
following me down into the depths of unconsciousness. Hello everyone, thank you for tuning in to another episode. As always, thank you for the outstanding amount of support that you guys have been giving me. I really appreciate it. And yeah, go check out Demon Creep on YouTube. He's got 3.92 thousand subs. Let's get him to 5,000 subs, that would be absolutely spectacular. Tell him that Sir Midnight sent you. And yeah, he has some crazy content out there. He does awesome horror stories. He stays on the grind, sometimes posting a video every one to two days. So yeah, go check him out. He's been awesome to me and everything, and he has a spectacular voice. I've really... Go, go visit his channel and give him some love. Anyways, without further ado, thank you guys so much for listening. Never forget, don't sleep tonight. <laughs>